Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, well, uh, good morning, boys. I'm looking to see what time it is. Looking to see what time it is. Yeah, it's morning, isn't it? Morning. It's great to be back for another another endurance podcast. Um, we're almost making a habit of this. We only did one two weeks ago. This is we're on a roll here, aren't we? On a roll. Um, how are you both this week, uh, Mike? How are you? Very good. Very good. We are drawing to the end of homeschooling. It's the last last week of homeschooling, so hopefully. Uh, Boys will be back in enjoying time with their mates next week, and we'll get some more time back. Oh yeah, of course you're. I forget, of course you're in Wales, aren't you? So your kids are still off. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ian, how was it with you this week, and how have your kids enjoyed going back? So ours are actually already there um, because they were. Vicky works in a school, and our class is key worker as well. So they've actually been going, but there's barely anyone in in Emily's class. So. Um, They've really just enjoyed, I think, having all their friends back there and feeling more normal um, than, than it had been. So, um, yeah, it hasn't been a change of routine for them, but certainly a, a more normal school experience. And, yeah, things are, things are good here. Um, weather's improving after a couple of stormy days um, out in the wind and rain. So, yeah, but things, are, things are moving in the right direction, I think. Yeah, yeah. When I took... Um... On that first day back on Monday when I took Cora and Elsie in and Cora's a, she's six, kind of, she's, she's only a couple of weeks time, she's seven. And she, and when they pulled into the car park and of course all the other kids are getting out of the cars in the car park and she's she's pressing her face against the window and she just says, Daddy, it's just all too much. And she just couldn't handle it because all her friends were there, you know. <laughs> oh, bless them, you know. It's, it's, it, it's a it, kids whilst they're resilient as well they say kids are resilient and they can handle this kind of thing but god they've all missed their friends don't they They really do miss the mates and uh and it, of course the 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 rules are they don't talk about rules of oh well you can meet with one other person and have a coffee with one other person or run with one other person but there were no rules for kids were there that they could meet one of the friends in the park it was only for adults you know so yeah, yeah so it's great they're all all heading back now and uh getting to see the friends again um, and the weather's been good, actually. As it, the last month or so, we've had very spring-like weather, haven't we? But at the same time, it's been cold. Has it been the same way you two are? Yeah, cold, especially on a night. I keep getting caught out when I go out for a run, if I go in the evening or in the morning, because in the morning, it seems to be getting warmer than I'm used to, so I'm worried too much. And then on a night, it's, it's getting colder than I'm used to, than I'm anticipating from what it's been like in the day. So it seems to be, it's that time of year where... You always put the wrong gear on to go out running. You're either too hot or too cold. But yeah, it's cold on a night, but better during the day. Yeah, yeah. 
mid midweek this week we had two glorious days proper shorts and t-shirt weather and then the in intervening night at midnight in my pajamas i was in next door's garden tying their trampoline down in the midst of a storm <laughs> so we've we've had it all this week here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so that uh, that famous saying when the when there's a storm and the wind's blowing really strong you say we all know that someone somewhere is losing a trampoline and someone is gaining one. <laughs> Ours is no longer on the deck in our garden. It's, it's, it's in the middle of the garden now. It needs it's upside down jobs. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Well, when we did our uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, we had um, quite a lot of feedback, a lot of emails coming in complaining that were no tweets of the week. Uh, I, to be honest, there weren't any emails, but I'm just trying to make it sound dramatic. But we didn't do tweets of the week. And, and I think that is a critical part of our show. And for those that don't know, tweets of the week is basically a very fast review of your last three to three or four tweets and why you put them out there. But you've got to do it in 60 seconds and you've got to do it blind and you've got to try and hit 60 seconds bang on. Now, of course, we are trusting that there's no, um, what should we say, no time doping going on. And I'm trusting that Mike and uh, Ian haven't got a clock there in front of themselves when they're doing it. Um, but we're going to have another go at this because it's now become our podcast tradition. So you got to watch there, Ian. I have, yeah, I'm ready. We're going to do Mike first. Yeah. So you can count him in with a stopwatch. Can I just, just to jump in there. So there's two things I'd say on that one, Mark. One is preparation is key. And two... <laughs> and two for anyone listening, we record this on Skype, and after about a dozen or so episodes, Mark still not realised there's a ticking clock in the top hand corner that you can look at. <laughs> oh, sorry, there is. <laughs> what a moment. Uh, no way. Only done twenty episodes. That's all. Ruined it for me now. <laughs> I'm not going to look at that though. I'm going to cover it with my hand when I'm doing it. <laughs> oh brilliant <laughs> ready then Mike yeah, I'm ready when you are yeah. 3, 2, 1, go cool so three tweets this week are all retweets they're not my work they're, they're things I saw and I read and I thought were really good pieces to share now the first one comes from some geezer out there called the endurance coach wrote a fantastic blog to be honest give him credit uh, it's entitled it was only a training race it was well written it was balanced and it's a must read for anyone um i'm just intrigued on that one who the ghostwriter might have been but i definitely recommend looking at that and having a read my second tweet comes from olympic bronze medalist marilyn okora she's announced her retirement from track and field and i shared one of her posts which was a blog she wrote entitled it was a letter to my sport was the entitled it was just a, a thank you letter and a reflective piece on her career but it's summed up at the end with the line no regrets just lessons which i thought was fantastic finally paralympic gold medalist hannah cocroft who um, again wrote a blog a piece for bbc sport website just highlighting how hard it is for Paralympics to get funding and the prize money available is much reduced to what many people think. And she actually quotes herself in it saying that um, 
people expect that she earns the same sort of money as Mo Farah, when in fact she probably pays more to enter some races than she does to win them. So just a real uh, signpost that we should continue to promote these minority sports and, and these people who we think may earn more than they aren't. And I'm pretty certain that's my longest ever tweets of the week. Oh, I just want to start, before I give the time, Mike, I just want to congratulate you on not looking at the clock and cheating while you were going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly going to look at the clock now. <laughs> <laughs> so it was more than a minute, as you might have guessed. It's one minute, 30. Wow. 33.7. Wow. I've lost my edge from pre-Christmas, haven't I? Yeah, you used to. Uh, it used to be on the dot, didn't it? I seem to think you're the champion of this. So I, I guess you're allowed. Uh, there's, um, there's, a, there's a creaker door. If someone wants to run in and steal it. <laughs> <laughs> Are we, are we going with uh, Ian next? Are you going to time him, Mike? Yeah, let me get my clock up. Okay. Ready? Three, yeah. two, one, go. So I, I'm going to start by saying when I look back at my tweets and, and what I've been, been sending out, I can't find as much on endurance sport as normal. It seems to be a lot more about COVID, but I'm not going to cover that here. But I think that says something about social media and my timeline at the moment. But um, yeah, so the, all of mine are, are retweets as well. Uh, and there's a little bit of a theme here. So um, first one was a retweet by someone called Liam Oliver. And it was about the role of carbs in, in, in recovery and how important um, carbs are in recovery. And I saw something similar again today as well, covering the, the importance of making sure that um, we're adjusting our carb intakes depending on the, the amount of training that we're doing. So that was sort of uh, resonating with that that I saw this morning. Um, another one along a um, similar theme uh, was from an article in fastrunning.com and looking at heart rate variability uh, and using that as part of recovery. Um, and that actually ties in with one of our past interviewees. I think Dan Nash discussed the importance of um, using uh, his new, uh, use of heart rate variability. And actually, he's continued to tweet about that since and, and saying how useful uh, that has been for him. So definitely something for people to start looking at, I think, as an option. And then the last one was Stephen Seiler, uh, an article about um, training indoors and how to effectively train indoors, which I think is particularly important right now, given the amount of people that are training at home, but also the importance of that for outdoor performance as well. And I think that's something that people don't always recognise enough is that actually doing a lot of training indoors and training in the heat, uh, heat training can be beneficial to outdoor performance as well. That's me. Cool. So... I guessed I had a bit of a fudge factor to still hold on to the title, despite going 50% over. <laughs> Did not think I'd still be leading a 141.5. Well, I guess I'd probably used 40 seconds before I even started on my first tweet. That didn't help. You mentioned your first tweet of 44 seconds. <laughs> okay. I was nodding off halfway through, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's oh, <laughs> uh, a practice. So there's two people stumbling down the finish line, Mark. We've, got, uh, we've, I, we've cramped up. We're, we're on all fours doing <laughs> the corner shuffle. It's like that. You met, was it Julie Moss and someone else? And they met, yeah. Those two ladies who end up crawling across yeah. the corner finish line. It's like that. Yeah. Um, I've got me. I've got my Twitter account open just to see what tweets I have because I'm not prepared at all. 
And luckily, as my Twitter opens, it has covered up the clock on that's on um on Skype. So I am not I promise I am not looking at the clock. So you feel free to you time me in with a three, two, one, go, and I will go. No problem. Three, two, one, go. Okay, my first tweet um, was, I can't take credit for uh, Piers Morgan uh, going, um, but it was a tweet aimed at him about the divisiveness of how, well, how people are using COVID and social media in some ways for divisive purposes. And it was largely around that this thing of, should runners be wearing masks? And I just found it very frustrating that people were saying that runners should wear masks when there's really no evidence for it. And it just became another hate campaign where people just start hating joggers or hating cyclists or whatever. And we're also going to chat about that a little bit more as well in a, on the show, a little thing. So, yeah, should runners wear, runners wear masks? Oh, excuse me. I think that was my phone. Um, the second one is uh, 80-20. 80-20 is used a lot in endurance training. It's a term that's used a lot, the 80-20 principle. 80% easy, 20% hard. And I think that is something which my tweet was at was saying that it's something that is very often misinterpreted. And that's something we're going to try and correct on today's show and talk a bit about the 80-20 principle and what it really means. And then my third tweet I'm going to talk about is for Ironman UK, I'd put a tweet out saying to people, if you're doing lots of hard and short stuff, you probably want to start switching now and trying to do a bit more volume and working on your resilience a little bit more because it doesn't matter how much power you can produce for 20 minutes if you're going to go into limp mode at 95 miles into the Ironman bike. So, you can, and that, of course, that ties into the 80-20 principle. So maybe we're going to talk about that a bit on the show as well. Stop there. So <laughs> this, is a, this is probably a good indication of how bad we were, Ian, is that you managed to beat us with a phone call in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> I was but say, what was I, I one? Was I one thirty one? One thirty one. One thirty three point seven. One thirty three. Marks come in at one thirty point zero five. Oh, <gasps> He's pinched it. Pinched it right at the end. Unbelievable. It it does show how long it has been since we've done tweets of the week. That I think we're we're all very out of practice. Yeah. And again, for all those listeners, you know. If you've had a time away, you cannot come back and perform how you performed six months yeah, ago, three right. months ago. You need to get progressively, gradually to where you were <laughs> once upon a time. I've got to be honest, I knew it was bad. But at the same time, I comfortably thought it ain't that bad. Not as bad as you two. <laughs> I, think, I think if we look back, you were probably the closest to your average. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so. Yeah, Mark hasn't lost any performance. No, you know, consistency is the key <laughs> to athletic performance. Yeah, there's <laughs> so, today's lesson. Yeah, let's get on some of these topics. First of all, runners should they be wearing masks, breathing their COVID on people? Um, you know, pe- people can can feel the runners breathing their COVID on them as they run past. <sighs> Ian sat there shaking his head. I'm going to come to you first for this one, Ian. What do you think? Uh yeah, I must admit this did uh, wind me up quite a lot. It um, fueled a few runs this one in terms of uh, my response to it. I just didn't. Uh, I, I saw one or two um, tweets about this, and uh, I, and I think one or two of the people that are involved in um, commenting on this have got quite strong opinions and quite biased opinions around masks, but it, um, and mask use. And I'm not um, averse to the use in the, in the right circumstances, but I don't agree that there's any benefit potentially for, for runners to be using them. 
Um, and if you look at the evidence, that's the case. But um, certainly that um, it's just the divisiveness and the naming of particular groups was what really annoyed me. I think it's um, I think it, it is playing into a few biases and uh, in certain groups who maybe already didn't like uh, runners and then or, or people who are particularly anxious around uh, COVID, um, which a lot of people are at the moment uh, and people play on that to get likes and uh, and more followers. Um, but what's disappointing is the media and the way that they pick up on it. So I, once I'd seen a couple of these tweets and I'd seen, the, I commented on your tweet as well on this topic, I went online and you just typed in runners and masks and the number of media outlets that had just repeated exactly the same text with no editorial oversight whatsoever and it included Runners Wild, who had just put out all the same material as all the other media outlets, is just, yeah, that's just disappointing. That no one's actually putting any critical lens on it and just repeating what is basically nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, quite early in the um, in the pandemic, there's quite a bit of work, and actually I think it might have been one of my tweets of the week, uh, quite a long time, uh, time back, some modelling research that looked at cyclists and runners and um, modelled actually the dispersion of breath uh, when people were uh, engaging in endurance sports. So look at this um, topic at a point when we knew far less about the risk of transmission um, outdoors versus indoors. And um, what that showed was obviously because because runners and cyclists are actually moving reasonably quickly, they're creating a disturbance of the air themselves. Um, and what you actually see is that um, because of that disturbance in the air and the vortex that's created and the, the vacuum behind the <clears throat> behind the runner or the cyclist, obviously an exaggerated effect for the cyclists because of the greater dispersion. Most of the breath is pulled into that athlete, so. There are concerns and possibly issues for um, someone who might be following an athlete. So if you're slipstreaming and riding in in, uh, in that formation, then that's an important consideration, I think. But if you think about this, what we know about masks is it should be used as a control measure um, when social distance is not possible. Um, use the inside as well. Um, and social distancing is a much more uh, um, effective control measure. Uh, and when someone's passing someone at the speed of a runner and probably you know in someone else's proximity for a split second as they go past, the chance that there's any uh, of any transmission from what I've seen of uh, of this modelling data and, and from what we know about transmission and, and risk environments. It's a very low risk situation and you see lots of people in the parks and I'm not picking out any particular groups where people are actually stood speaking to one another. They're walking in groups where they're actually in close proximity to people um, and, they're, and they're still very low risk um, situations, but certainly ones where I'd see the risk is heightened from a runner running past someone um, where I think it, you know, it's or a cyclist very low risk and it just seems to be that it's an opportunity for media outlets to get clicks um, and, and for certain people to uh, to pick up followers and, and likes and playing on people's anxieties where they, they'll look at anything that they think is you know, going to help them in terms of um, uh, making them feel a bit uh, more comfortable, you know, if they avoid runners or at least finding someone that they can kind of blame and, uh, and um, 
and point a finger at, which is not something that we want people to be to be doing with any group. So now I don't see any basis for it. Yeah, I agree. I don't have too much more to add to that. I think it's one of those classic two and two equaling five. You know, it's that causality thing. There's obviously if you sit down on a piece of paper and you write what things can increase the risk of of spread, increased breathing, droplet spread in those things. And then you suddenly go, well, that's what happens in running. So we'll blame that that's that's an increased risk. In reality, even when Trish Greenall gave her interview on TV. I'm sure she did say that it's in runners who don't follow the social distance guidelines. So as long as people are being diligent with where they're running, when they're running, how they're running and and the steps they take, then I'm in agreement with Ian. I've certainly not read anything that would suggest that masks should be mandated or or would (laughs) add extra layers. If it is simple hypothetical question of would running with a mask be uh, reducing the risk then the answer is yes but what's the downside to that obviously there's a lot of downsides to running performance with the mask on so um i'll keep an open mind i'll i'll, I'll see um see what the evidence says if and when it changes but i'm in agreement it's just pure clickbait it's people looking for you know there's so much noise out there right now you have to shout the loudest to get the attention so um you know that's where i've interpreted this from and I'll keep an eye on it because it's topical and we'll have conversations about it, I'm sure. But um, certainly not advising runners right now to do anything more than manage the the responsible way to run and train. I'd be more concerned right now in South Wales. We've got cyclists who are starting to creep out a bit more in groups. And I've certainly run and driven past cyclists in the last couple of weekends to me that are spending longer in each other's slipstreams in those sort of um, conditions that I would almost think it's a conversation geared for them in some ways more than the runners but um we'll, we'll yeah. keep an eye on it and we'll see if the evidence changes no i think there's some good points there I mean, yeah. you, you, you read some of the specific quotes from the articles and there's, there's some things that are you can't dispute like mike says there it reduces the risk well it does but if the risk is already infinitesimally small then is there a need to reduce that risk you know, it's risk associated with hundreds of activities we all engage in every day, but we don't not do them because there's a risk attached because we're making that assessment that actually that risk is very low. And if the risk is very low for, for runners to go out without wearing masks, then why are we asking for an, a, an additional restriction on people um, and heightening divides between between groups? Mm. I think it's uh, it does seem to have kind of faded down a little bit. Maybe that's because Piers has gone. You know, but it just kind of like died down a little bit. I've not heard much over the last week. And about a week ago when I said, oh, we should we should, you know, talk about this because this seems to be a hot topic. And it has been a little bit quiet, which is a good thing. But I do think, like you just mentioned, then it's sadly it's a thing with the news outlets now that especially if you've got advertising on the websites or whatever it is, they're all fighting for. They need people to click onto the websites. So we have these clickbait headlines and it's just it, they just it's got to attract your attention. So you click on the link and go to their website. And, and certain headlines will grab the attention far more than others and ones which will terrify you, ones which scare you or which, things which anger you, anger you, they're the kind of things that people click on. And so, you know, it's just uh, it's an obvious thing to, to put up on Twitter or Facebook by one of these websites because they know that people are going to be one side or the other and people are going to get angry about it. 
but they don't care because they just want people to click on it because it brings them to their website. And sadly, you see, I think we've been seeing a lot of that in the last couple of months. Um, and what it's led to, and so unfortunately, is a lot of people being terrified because people putting headlines out there, which are terrifying all the time to get them to click on them. But yeah. hey, no. That's Ian, Ian mentioned it, and I think it's a really valid point that we should just, you know, emphasise that the sad part here is some of those mainstream endurance-based magazines and media and it's a real good illustration of how with most things these days they either extrapolate what they want from the evidence they use a selection of the evidence that suits the narrative they want or they sometimes ignore the evidence and in in less dramatic circumstances than covid when we're talking about stretching or what type of shoe you should wear or what exercises are best for things then i would just urge any listeners to just you know big pinch of salt and a healthy dose of skepticism when you do open some of these big websites or magazines because just because it's shiny glossy and has a big sales reach it doesn't mean that the evidence is, is accurate in there yeah it was interesting you know with the um with i mean i don't know enough about it really but with the that the south african variant for example with covid that correct me if I'm wrong but they found that it was it had um um the vaccine had less of an impact on people who had mild symptoms, so it didn't treat those as well, but it seemed to have the same impact. The impact was just as good on those that were severe cases on hospitalisation cases. So it just didn't have the impact on the people that were mild cases. But in reality, do we care? Because if it's just a mild case, it's just a mild case, isn't it? It's not really a major drama. So, um the and all the headlines ran with that the vaccine doesn't work as well yeah. on the south african variant you had to read into it to find out well it does work as well on the severe cases and that's what matters you yeah. know so um yeah uh, and that, that's because that's that's what people will click on no one wants to put a if they put a title a headline out there which says seems to work fine on the south african variant as well well no one's going to click on it because it's not a drama you know so, uh, and, that, and that's the thing in, in the world we live in where people they want this immediate sort of answer nobody wants to spend time researching it then nobody clicks on the links or goes to an article that's been quoted to then pick it apart you know i guess ian and i spend our days doing that thing you know we, we look past an abstract for something and try to understand the full context of things yeah but um but it's easy to just take a headline and make or an abstract and make a headline from it and it's easy to believe it without then looking further even you know I, I see health and fitness professionals every day quoting studies online that look like oh good that's a good bit of info to have you just take 10 minutes aside access that article read that article and you go well that's not quite what they said yeah you you've just taken the bit that suited you and what you wanted to get the message across unfortunately yeah. then a lot of the lay people have just taken it as gospel because they trust the source that it comes from and, yeah. and you shouldn't yeah. always trust the sources that it comes from. Mm. You can trust this podcast, though. I would you say definitely trust this one. Trust this podcast to disappoint. <laughs> we'll cut through all of that. We'll cut through it all. Yeah. So moving on, we said we were going to talk today about <clears throat> one of the things I mentioned in the tweet was 80-20. I think it's a good time to talk about endurance training principles. And this is one of the most common topics, the 80 20 principle and um you, it, you know you, you see it a lot in magazine articles on social media and blogs and stuff like that and the basically 80 20 principle implies that 
80% of your training should be easy and the other 20% should be hard. But there's lots of ways to misinterpret it, lots of different ways to interpret it. Um, so I thought it'd be a really, really good topic for, for discussion today and how people can apply it in their training, whether they're triathletes, whether they're ultra runners and whether they're training for a sprint race or an Ironman or whatever it may be. So I think uh, we should come to you first, Mike, because I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this to open the discussions on 8020. Yeah, I've tried to I've tried to keep it succinct. So I've just got the three pages of notes on this one um and i'm sort of just going to rattle through them i'm probably going to end up storming into future points that we can go back to but just to give you my sort of you know my um soapbox on on polarized training so i'm a fan i'm an advocate i've used it myself in my training but i've used it with athletes and patients as well both in training and in injury rehab but i think and you mentioned it mark i think as with anything it's the context and the nuance that is key you know 80-20 training is not a golden magical elixir for everyone. It's certainly not perfect for everyone all of the time. Um, it's important probably then to clarify what we mean by it, because are we talking Stephen Siler's polarized training mm-hmm. or now this more sort of abridged version of Matt Fitzgerald 80-20 principle, which although very similar, um, they are quite different. You know, one's based on training time, one's based on um, effort and 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 the percentage of your training that's based on effort, not time. So um, so the, it is a bit of a grey area. I see it misinterpreted a lot and therefore fail to achieve the aims it it, uh, it means because people aren't quite applying the model in the way it's designed. Um, if we look back on Siler, who invented it and his original concept, then it was based off evidence of observational studies in elite cross-country skiers. And they adapted and adopted this re- approach, which... Um, proved very very successful for them so the hypothesis being that if it's really good for the elites then it must be good for the recreational athletes as we know so many of the things we do and that's when we jump on it and we apply it and we use it and we get some success but we also get some failure with it so then they do the studies on the recreational athlete and realize that they don't quite respond in the same way that the elites do so why is that what what's the what's the reasoning and we don't really know what we some speculate sometimes is perhaps the elites just have more time to accrue the zone one base building. So when they jump up to that really hard training, then they get the, the benefits accordingly. So maybe the zone two type stuff, the more time spent in zone two is actually better for a recreational athlete some of the time, unless their time is available to do more. Um, so I'm, I'm, learning to be a little bit more cultured with it myself where i like it in the recreational athlete which is you know the main people that we tend to appeal to and work with is then it just acts as a really good buffer to avoid that sort of moderate intensity rut that a lot of people you know sila calls it a zone two abuser or the intensity training black hole um what you tend to see is those people who are pressured with the time they have available will always try to train quite hard. If I've only got an hour, I'm going to make it count. I'm going to sweat. I'm going to get out of breath. And that's where they don't spend enough time building base and they don't go hard. So their easy is never easy enough and the hard's never hard enough to get those benefits. And they're just stuck in this sort of moderate intensity. So I like it with that population. Um, but what I try to always consider is what's the goals of the athlete. 
what time scales do we have? Because in, if you're in a much shorter event and we don't have a big run up to get you there, then actually spending more time in zone two is perhaps a better plan for you guys. If we have a really long run up to something, then spending time in in a in a zone one for longer and then peaking into zone three is is better. Um, I like it in injury rehab. So say someone's coming back from something like a foot stress fracture, and what we don't want to do is spend lots of time in hard running. Then maybe I push zone three work into one one sort of um, aspect of their training. Maybe all the zone three work is done on the bike or in the pool. And it's zone one then in the run. So it can be played around with, which opens another question up is, are we talking total training time relevant to the sport? So if you're a triathlete or a multi-sport guy, are we saying 80-20 in each discipline or 80-20 of your total training? Do you need to focus on, on being better at one bit than the other bit? And therefore we we play around. So it's all that interpretation of where it's at. I also like it as a gauge. So maybe it's the concept I've certainly worked with athletes where I'm not exclusively doing 80-20. Maybe I'm doing 90-10, 70-30, 75-25 with them. So I'm still using the concept of it, but I'm not rigidly sticking to 80-20. Um, so ultimately, I think it's just a useful tool some of the time for some of the people. Um, it works only if easy is easy enough and hard is hard enough. Maybe it's about thinking whether you're in-season or off-season. Because where we see the real success with polarized training is to maximize performance. So maybe it's a segment of your training season when you're trying to peak that it's beneficial for, not a year-round strategy. Um, and I guess that's pretty much where um, where I'd be. The only thing I'd add to it is if you go in off Sila's model where it's um, heart rate, then you have to spend time thinking about how we're monitoring that heart rate. So, you know, obviously gold standard being lab tested. Most of us don't have that. So we have to appreciate that submaximal estimations and predictions aren't as accurate. Likewise, if you're a triathlete, then are you testing your heart rate to get those zones based on swim, bike and run separate tests? Or are you going off a generic calculator? Because the ratio then will be influenced by those those submaximal tests. Are you retesting your heart rate during the block to then measure if you're still working accurately? So you just have to be diligent and judicious in the way you monitor it and assess it as well as how you apply it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to come to Ian in a second. There's a couple of points I want to bring up then. So you use the term polarised and for people listening in just so they understand that. And I know a lot of people will will have heard the term polarised training before. When we're talking 80-20, in its simplest form, we're saying 80% should be easy and 20% should be hard. And the polarised term means exactly that. So you're either doing stuff really hard, you're doing stuff really easy, but you're not doing the stuff in the middle, which you mentioned earlier as the kind of grey stuff getting that rut where an hour at a fairly hard pace is neither easy or hard, it's somewhere in the middle. So 80, 20 and polarised to some extent kind of go together, don't they? Yeah. But it is also important to, to think about how we how we define 80-20 because I think was originally the idea of 80-20 is that 20% of your training sessions should have some intensity in them. I'm not the the, the original definition because I put that I put a post on a on Twitter the other day and I was trying to make this point that if I do if I was doing a maximal 
uh, uh, efforts on the bike. So I'm on my turbo trainer and I'm doing 10 times one minute, absolutely eyeballs out. It's a maximal red line in it with a two to three minute recovery. And then I have a warm up and a cool down within that session. So let's say the session is an hour within that one hour session. Less than 20 percent of the session is maximal. And the rest of it is either recovery or warming up or cooling down. So if I did three bike sessions, which were an hour long each week, just three bike sessions, and they were all maximal sessions, one minute efforts, two minute efforts, you could look at that and go, well, that's 80-20. But all I've done is three maximal workouts. But because there's a warm up and a cool down and recovery, so it's kind of how you define that. And it's very, you know, and, and I think that's where it gets confusing as well. Um, but I think what what you would take from the 80 20 and I, my training, I think less than if you work it out on overall time, like we've just done then, if you, you know, the, the minutes you're, you spend riding hard and the minutes you spend riding easy, I think way less than five percent of my training is, is, is hard, you know. So but the simple message is that you are supposed to be doing a small amount of hard stuff and a lot of easy stuff. And the polarized means that hard is hard and easy is easy. So uh, coming to you, Ian. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with everything that's been been said there. Um, I think it's a really interesting topic. And I think um, as with anything, uh, you I think one of the issues that you see with this is that you can see some selective interpretation where people will uh, take from it what they want to to sort of reinforce the training that they're doing. And I think, again, I often talk about reflection. I think it's important to sort of reflect on what you actually want to get out of your sport and what you're actually doing. Is that the most effective way of doing it? And if what you what you claim to be doing, is that really what you are doing? I think um, certainly a, a good example of this is with the hit training. You see, uh, th that was certainly a, a buzz at one time. And um, there's some people that are proponents of sort of hit training and focus on certain elements of the, the research evidence. Other people are uh, more critical of it, but uh, of the research support for it. But even if you're an advocate of it, I think my, my concern around hit training is that people see it as a they focus in on the element of needing to do less training. So, but what they don't do is get they, what what they do in a research environment when you've got someone in a lab and you're mo closely monitoring someone's intensity is you're making sure that they get to that intensity level that you're meant to be at when you're in hit training. Um, when people then apply that in the real world, they probably they might just be running at 75%, but they train less because they think they're doing hit training. Uh, and I think you can see the same with the 80-20 in, in that people might feel as though, you know, 20% of my training is, feels quite hard um, and 80% I'm sort of running easy. But is are you, and Mike sort of touched on this, but are you actually assessing that effectively to make sure that you've got that amplitude in your training, that distinction between the two? Because, you know, if you're talking about zone one and sort of zone four and five, you've got a big distinction there, haven't you, in terms of effort levels. Those, those easy runs really need to be easy. And, and I think that's actually the side that needs much more focus as an athlete in terms of the monitoring and, and actually being very strict with yourself in making sure that those easier sessions are actually at a low enough intensity. Because you might feel as though you're working eyeballs out on your hard sessions, but if you're not doing those easy sessions easy enough, you probably just can't actually get into that uh, zone that you need to be in to get the benefit from this training. 
Um, so I think that's where the real danger lies is that people sort of uh, apply it and think they're applying it, but they're not strict enough in terms of measuring that intensity. And I think I, I might mention this as well about heart rate. Uh, quite often, well, we have different heart rate zones across different disciplines. So we need to obviously be thinking about those zones differently across different disciplines. But there's certainly a big response, especially when you move into a, a performance phase where you're putting in this intensity training in terms of your heart rate's response to, to training. Um, and if you're not then assessing that again, you're still using heart rate, you're probably never going to be getting into that, uh, what was previously a sort of zone four, zone five, that where you need to be. So you definitely need to be um, assessing that um, as you go through that block. And I certainly agree with that. I think, so there's that, making sure you've got that sort of polarized um, element in the training itself to make sure you've got that big distinction between the two so that if you are trying to use the 8 to 20 principle then you're applying it effectively because then you can actually assess whether it's working for you or not because if you're not actually doing it right and then you draw the conclusion well that didn't work for me then that's going to obviously negatively influence your training going forward so we need to be very specific about how we're going to do that um also, people do respond differently to training, as we know, you know, one athlete to the next. Some are going to get masses of benefits from doing really low intensity work, certainly for, for, for quite a long period. Some people need more intensity to, to get benefit. But in order to determine, so, you know, I would say definitely try this, especially when you're in that um, competitive phase. Um, but also make sure that you're applying it properly so that you can effect, uh, effectively um, evaluate it. But what I'd also say is that you, as well as having that distinction within your training block, you also need to have that distinction between when you're not in a competitive period because working at those sort of levels of intensity requires uh, a lot of concentration and a lot of effort. Uh, and it's probably not something that you can do effectively year round. So if you haven't got those periods when you're not doing it, you're probably not going to be able to sort of get to those levels as well um, when you do need to be. And I, I also think there's just a general point here probably for um, a, a lot of ultra endurance runners in particular. And, and I think probably ultra endurance um, runners who probably just don't do enough of this, uh, of the higher intensity stuff, there's that tendency to gravitate towards just the, the, the low intensity stuff. And obviously that works for some people, as I say, but there'll be other people that are sort of missing out on that. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I would definitely recommend trying this, but making sure that you, um, you're doing it effectively um, to, to evaluate whether it works for you. Mm. It's an interesting point. I would say from the people we test, so when they come to us, if we're doing some kind of testing with them before we start a coaching plan, the ones that probably need the high-intensity work tend to be the ones that have been actually doing it for the longest already, doing the sport for the longest. So the ones that have been doing ultra running for the last 10 years, when you test them, they tend to be, for want of a, a, a probably less offensive word, plodders and shufflers. And they don't have any top end. The ones that have done 25 Ironman races tend to be plodders and shufflers and they can go all day, but they have no top end. So they've trained themselves into that hole. The ones who probably need to do the slower stuff and the longer stuff are generally the ones who are newer to the sport. I've just packed in football. I want to do an Ironman. Their power and speed is never an issue. They just can't keep going. 
So, in the, you know, you're saying people tend to need a bit more of this or a bit more than that. As a generalisation, I would tend to find for me, the ones that have been already doing the sport for years and years and years are the ones that lack the intensity and the ones that are fresher coming in are the ones that are lacking the endurance, you know. So that's what we really tend to find. But I'm going to put something else to you then because um, we're talking about the uh, um, volume. You also said that the reason why we should do the slower stuff, slower, is because then you're fresher and you can do the harder sessions harder. And that I hear that quoted a lot. Do your slow stuff slow because that enables you to do your hard stuff hard. But doing your slow stuff slow also enables you to do the volume. Yeah. So how many times you will ask someone to ride 100 miles in preparation for an Ironman and they'll come back and say, I got to 70 and I was too tired. I'm just not fit enough. You are fit enough. You just rode a bit too hard. Ask them to run for two and a half, three hours. They get to an hour and a half, two hours, and then they pull it short because they've ran too hard. So they can't get the volume in. Not only, you know, so as well as this argument of do your easy stuff easy so you can do your hard stuff hard, do your easy stuff easy so you can do the volume as well so you can run four, three hours, so you can cycle four, six or seven hours. So what I want to put to both of you then is this. Volume, we hear a lot about this term junk miles. Let's focus on quality over quantity. Um, just going out and doing lots and lots of miles is junk. And yet, pretty much all the world's elite marathon runners are doing 120 to 160 miles a week. All the top cyclists in the world are doing 400 to 600 miles a week. And all the top swimmers are doing between 60, 80K up to 100K of swimming per week. So, Mike, coming to you first, what's your thoughts on that? It's exactly the same as what Ian said. It's someone taking a principle and misinterpreting it. So if I'm doing good quality training, but then I'm just trying to layer on more training for the sake of it, then yeah, maybe I'm accruing junk miles that isn't giving me the chance to recover or benefit from the training I need to. But if my program has high volume for a specific reason and I'm sticking to it, then that's brilliant. That's what you need to do. Junk miles to me are when you've done your designated program and then you go, oh, I'll squeeze another couple in. And, and they're not achieving what they want to be. That could be speed. It could be distance. It could be whatever. So um, so junk miles is, an, is another one of those really good examples of, well, it was meant as this, but people now interpret it as that. Mm. Um, and again, I think you're exactly right. You know, people just and it's all it's this. So there's a couple of things to unpick that. Um, I died at 70 mile type approaches. I think number one, there's that intensity blindness, as Sila calls it. So those people who are zone two or zone two, three, depending if you're three or five zone models and are used to tempo, because I think that's what we we could have explained a little bit better. Effectively, in a polarized training approach, what we miss is tempo work. We do really easy or really hard. We take out the tempo and the people who don't adapt to it well are the ones who only do the tempo. So if you're trying to ride a tempo or run a tempo or whatever, then then that's when you're blinded to how easy, easy should be and how hard, hard should be. Um, you know, Kip Chogi, for example, he's he's running his easy sessions at 10 minute mile in ish. And part of the reason for that, which comes more to the, the psychology of it, I think, and Ian, Ian's ballpark is is very much the. If I've got a big ride on the weekend, I'm going to ride with my friends because it helps me get through the ride. Well, now we start throwing in the competitiveness. Now we maybe ride with people we shouldn't really be doing that slow ride with. 
So I tend to do a lot of my stuff solo when I've got the really easy things because it's easy for discipline or I'm very selective in who I train with. There's also the ego thing that's thrown in. You want me to run out slow? You want me to ride out slow? That, mm. I can't do that. What if my mates see me? What if they see me plodding along at 10, 11 minute mile in when they think I can run at seven minute mile in? So there's a whole other barrier of this stuff that people have to embrace to be able to apply it well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Ian? Yeah, no, some really good points there. Um, I think th this takes me back a little bit to, um, I, I agree completely in terms of sort of the, the, the lower intensity allowing people to do more volume. Um, but it takes us back to what we were talking about two weeks ago about trying different things during COVID and what we've learned from it. And uh, I mentioned um, when I did the, uh, the Lakeland lapland virtual that i did five marathons so in the, uh, across 11 days so i did two back to back and then i did another one on the saturday the, the following saturday on the weekends i did saturday sunday then i did easy running through the week and then i did saturday uh, sorry sunday no saturday monday tuesday the following weekend because we'd gone into christmas so we'd finished work so i did saturday and then monday tuesday so i did three three marathons in four days on the second block but what i did was because i knew this was something that i had done before i really dropped the intensity so down to like sort of now for me it was uh, lower intensity than i'd normally run at outside sort of well, it's about four hour marathon pace now i minute mean, mile for the first one and then i gradually increased the intensity as the, uh, as i went through them because what i recognized was how much how well i did recover when I, I could run a marathon at nine minute miles and actually get up and not feel too bad the next day and actually go out and run another marathon. But I would never have found that out if I'd normally been running at my normal training intensities. If I went out and ran 20 miles and a normal long run pace, um, I wouldn't feel like going out and doing that again the next day. So that, that's something I've taken forward and sort of learned about in my training is that actually I can take my volume higher than I normally would if I'm just prepared to have that discipline and, and, and drop the uh, the intensity back. Um, and I think just a, another one of the points Mike made just to pick up on that is that, um, yeah, we need, to, we need to be clear on what you're doing in any block of training, any phase of training and what you're trying to develop and which uh, which systems you're trying to develop. And I, I think um, when uh, going back to the interview with Dan Nash again, when he talked about he does some um, like 10 second sprints flat out hill sprints 10 seconds with really long recoveries because what he's focusing on there and that's as a, as a sort of marathon runner endurance athlete but recognizing the importance of sort of focusing on that sort of elastic components of the tendons but also the, the, the top end speed really developing that and all within us we've all got a capacity at a certain a certain speed that is our maximal speed and everything else falls off that maximal speed so there might be periods of our training where we want to be developing that if we want to develop as an athlete and that's where we need to really focus on you know really maximal intensity stuff with really long recoveries which seems like a really alien thing to do as a, a as a um as an endurance athlete but the counter to that is there might be uh, as you mentioned people that really benefit from sort of that developing that top end of endurance and we think about top end of speed but this top end of endurance in terms of our capacity how long we, we we can go for so if that's what we're focusing on in a block of training then yeah if we, if we um, from you know what i learned recently you know if you really are prepared to sort of hold back on that intensity you really can expand your um your volume further than 
than you probably ever have been able to previously and then therefore challenge the system you know in a different way and i think yeah you, you get those examples of general groups who benefit from different types of training and they're uh, obviously because their bodies have responded to what they've been doing for a long period of time so you look for what the gap is and what's been missing in that and and that's probably what they need the most of and and then just to sort of build on that in terms of going back to one of the earlier points around sort of what i said about ultras and that they're still needing to have their high intensity stuff because it, there's always that and you see it with marathon not just the ultra running everyone's obsession is the long run because that's the one they see that's being closest to their event uh, and with the ultras obviously psychologically we're we're anxious about how long we've got to be running for um so what we tend to do is we focus our training on things that may intuitively feel as though allow us to run for longer but actually that high intensity work can actually shift up where that top end speed is and i say everything else falls down from that so what you've got to do to get to if you want to run for a significant portion of an ultra you've got to get to the point where you can run at least on the flat at an intensity that is really really easy for you like in like probably an intensity you never train at and if you don't if you if you don't get your fitness to that probably with some high intensity work you, you probably need to walk the majority of an ultra if you unless you can have a very uncomfortable experience and you will inevitably end up um, walking so you do need that it's intuitive that you do that really long low intensity stuff but you do still need to focus on that intensity bit to pull up all those training speeds so that you have got a speed that you can run at that is still at an intensity you can uh, continue all day yeah yeah I guess it's simplest for us. I try to explain to people in the simplest form as how fast can you go and can you keep it going? And it's those two things. So some people, how fast are you and can you keep it going? So let's take that example of running a marathon rather than running an ultra. Can you run 26 miles without stopping? No. Okay. Well, you need to learn how to run 26 miles without stopping, even if it's slow. Once you can run 26 miles without stopping, the next step is then when you want to do it faster, don't you? And if you're if you want to run it two hours faster, then you have to be a faster runner. So you have to then switch your training and focus more on your speed. So what's your weakness? Are you slowing down and you're walking in the marathon or walking in your ultra? Or are you comfortable running at a steady pace, but you're just not a fast enough runner? And you can kind of apply that to all sports, I think, and get in that balance right of the high intensity versus of low intensity and doing the volume and knowing when to do it and in, in what quantities. But um, just going back to the volume thing, then so we said like the, the doing it at the lower intensity allows you to recover sufficiently to then do the higher stuff hard, but you can also add more volume. I guess the trick with adding volume, and it's okay for me to say, well, elite runners run 120 to 140 mile a week, and pro cyclists are riding 400 to 600 mile a week, and elite swimmers are swimming 100k a week, and that's all very well. But not many of us listening in uh, are pro, pro athletes. <laughs> we just don't have that time. So that's why people will look for other options, won't they? Because riding 400, 500 mile a week on your bike is probably just not feasible. Um, it, they, certainly swimming 100K, well, just getting to the pool and having the pool time to swim 100K a week, you know, it's just not feasible. Running may be less so, actually. I think running is the one sport, isn't it, where if you say to someone, run 100 miles a week, well, that's it's probably an hour, it could be an hour and a half a day. An hour in the morning, an hour in the evening would be plenty of time. It's much harder with cycling than some of the things. So I think running, you do have more scope. 
And I know a lot of people who packed in cycling to take up running for that actual reason. They, they, they quoted that reason that they didn't have enough time. But so that's I suppose that's that's an issue, though, it's just the, the general time management. Um, so, uh, um, Mike, uh, coming to you, just any thoughts on that then? So we're saying that volume works, but for a lot of people, it's just not practical, is it? So I th- you're right. And I think that's it's a simple mistake sometimes when we, we look at this. So most people think that I I need to train more. So rather than trying to think about what they do in the time they have available, they try to find unrealistic ways to get more time in. And then we get frustrated because we can't do that. We piss the family off. We piss the friends off. We piss work colleagues off. A first step, a simple step, which often can make a difference. Now, it may not be perfect. It may not be the ultimate answer or the way to get the ultimate volume is let's think about the available hours you do have. So let's say you're an eight hour a week, you know, an hour a bit a day and two hours on a weekend. And I can that's what I've got available. So what I'm tending to do is I'm doing an hour or an hour and a half every day quite hard in this zone, too. Well, how about you sit down and we just be inventive with those eight hours? Can you make one of those days a 30 minute day and bulk the 30 minutes then onto a different day? So all we're doing is manipulating days to to make rides longer, runs longer, build the volume into those sessions. As a really nice benefit from that, then, is the next day when you've only got 30 minutes. Now we've got a really nice time scale to ramp up the intensity then and get a harder session in. Mm-hmm. So my first question whenever I'm chatting to athletes who are looking to gain more volume is, OK, before we get unrealistic and you quit your job, leave your wife or husband, start trying to find ways to live on a desert island and train. How about we just try and be clever with can I squeeze more into one day at the expense of another day? So now those eight hours have a real volume component put in them with a high intensity component to complement them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the next step then maybe I remember probably this would be in about 2004, 2005. I was training at the time. Ironman UK was still down in Sherbourne. That was the major race every year. And I used to train with a friend who was a GP and we had done all of that stuff. We'd manipulated our, our hours available and he was desperate to go sub 10. As a partner in his own GP practice for the following season, he dropped his clinical hours to 20 hours to give himself more time for volume and he breezed under 10 hours. So we know that if the situation can be manipulated that much, we could all end up being being much, much better. But that's not feasible or realistic to most of us. So, my, you know, yes, the answer may be to find more hours if it gets to that point that you're that committed to doing it. But straight off the bat, manipulate the hours that you do have and you might get a lot more benefit out of it. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So having a 30, even a 30 minute session one day, it's 10 or 15 minute warm up and then 10 or 15 minutes of extreme high intensity short intervals, but then make it an hour and a half the next day and, and, and get you tackling both sides of it then, aren't you? Uh, Ian, coming to you, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I was going to come to similar points. Um, I think a lot of us as endurance athletes look at elites and uh, there's, there's often we're quite envious of them we think you know if only I was that talented or you know if, if I could um that I'd love to be able to run at that speed and this is just as good as I can be this is what my talent will allow me to be but I think we've got to recognize that there are other constraints on people's lives that limit what people can do um and we are, but at the same time we all want to know what we could be as athletes and how good we could be um so 
you know, one option on that is to sort of negotiate certain certain times with friends, family, where you might be able to train harder in a certain part of the year where you can train what would be more akin to what you'd see uh, an elite athlete doing um, to, to test out some of those things and see where your limits would be or what would be the effect of being able to do that. Um, but obviously looking at what else is going on in life and, you know, COVID's affected lots of different people different ways, but some people say it's because they've been on fellow or whatever, all of a sudden it's giving them, and they haven't got children, it's giving them the opportunity to do masses more training than they would normally do. Uh, and they've seen, you know, incredible results off the back of that. Um, and that might be something that is a possibility for other people, but um, but the constraints in their life wouldn't allow it. <clears throat> so I think we always need to, um, you know, be realistic and sort of frame what we're, um, capable. We're trying to find out how good we are, but within the limits uh, of our lives as they currently are. I think is the is the key thing. So we're not sort of beating ourselves up too much. But I think that, uh, related to that, another point that I was just thinking of earlier is obviously we're focusing a lot here on um, on performance and what optimizes performance. But people's motivations for participation in sport differ. And, you know, how much the social element and the participation element and the competitive element are all sort of at different levels for, for different people. And I think all of this, you know, uh, what we've discussed in terms of sort of optimising training should be sort of applied and interpreted um, in light of that. So you don't want to suddenly feel as though, well, you know, th th these are the most optimal ways of training. But if that's not what is going to get you the most from your sport, then maybe that's not for you. But at the same time, don't, I think we've just got to be more, try to be, reflect more and think more about what it is that we're participating in sport for. Because you don't, yeah, um, don't fool yourself that you're training for performance when really sport is, is not about performance for you it's about participation so when you're identifying what your goals are and what you're putting together in terms of your program and the races you're going to do what is it that's most important for you in identifying that and then putting a program together that satisfies those goals within the constraints of your life i think um but importantly if you are focused very much on performance then make sure that you are effectively monitoring and evaluating what you're doing so that you can um, you can get the most out of it. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's, you say, being, being realistic about why you're doing the event and what you want out of it. And so and that's, that's always going to be the first thing for the pro before you write the programme, isn't it? Because if you want to do an Ironman triathlon and you just want to complete it, then you know what? You can complete it on relatively minimal amounts of training. You don't have to cut your job hours and ruin your family life to to complete it. So you don't have to get bogged down into that. If that's what it's about, um, then if you just want to complete it, is there a difference between completing it in 16 and 15 hours? You know, it doesn't really matter. I think one of the things with the junk mileage, I would say that bothered me the most about it is when people use the term junk mileage and refer to volume as junk mileage. And I, I said this to a couple of people last week. I said, you know, the, a lot of people don't have the time to train and they can't. Volume works. Otherwise, all the world's best wouldn't be doing it. Simple. But if you haven't got the time to do it, you haven't got the time to do it. And it's as simple as that. You know, unfortunately, that's just life. But don't confuse the fact that volume works, but you haven't got time with volume being junk. Yeah. You know, don't call volume junk mileage because we haven't got time. And coaches, I think, will refer to volume as junk mileage because they have a financial reason for doing that. 
because I can sign you up to an Ironman and tell you that you'll be the best you can be on seven hours a week, which is not true. But if I refer to that's all junk, don't worry about that. I think that the coaches have a responsibility to be careful with that as well. Of the, you know, telling people that volume is junk and doesn't work because they, you can buy into my program, you know. So I, I, I don't think volume is practical for a lot of people, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't understand it doesn't work. So, yeah. Anyway, I, and this all came about, we're just going back to this conversation, the, the thing you mentioned there before, Ian, about, um, you know, do the balance between high intensity and low intensity and, and the conversation with someone doing an Ironman triathlon this year. And what you see at Ironman, you know, Ironman UK events or Ironman Wales, I'm entered in this year. And what you'll commonly see is people um, walking a lot of the marathon. You know, they're walking a lot of the marathon. And it does make you think if you're in that place where you think you're going to be walking the marathon, really, where should your training be? Should it be focused on manage to, to run slow for a long, long time? Or, or should it be focused on doing short, high intensity stuff? And, and I see a lot of people with their heads buried in the short, high intensity stuff and think, well, what is the point? Because you walked half of the marathon. So it's just really simple. It's not sports science. It's just simple advice, isn't it? You're going to walk half the marathon, get to the point where you can run the whole thing before you're worrying about doing the really, really high intensity stuff. So have we got time for one final question? Yeah, yeah. Can I jump in on that before you do, Mark? I was just going to say that that's a really good point about the um, when it can, when polarised training can be individualised. So when you get an athlete and you say, you know, why are you doing the high intensity stuff? And their answer actually is something as simple as I'm scared I'm going to miss the swim cut off. OK, so you're a decent biker. We know you're going to struggle on the volume for the run and you need speed work. OK, so when we write your program, let's put the zone three work into your swim to make you a faster swimmer. Yeah. But when it comes to running, it's going to be zone one easy because we just need you to keep running. Yeah, yeah, I think the thing I'd add then as well, Ian mentioned about COVID giving people the opportunity to spend more time training. The other thing that it did was it took racing off the calendar. So people took the pressure off high intensity training to just train. Yeah. yeah. Now, I know with, you know, there are an abundance of more races available these days than there were 10, 15, 20 years ago. So it's easier to find races. But back in, in our day, when we in inverted commas, then... We raced far less than I see people now. You know, we had an A race, a B race, and a C race. I see people now got D, E, F, G races. They got six big events to try and get to their major event. Now, when you're always focusing on the next race, which is on the horizon, your program doesn't allow you to take the step back and build volume without intensity. So I'd almost say to some of the listeners, then if you think I haven't got time to put volume in, maybe check your race calendar. Maybe put some gaps in your race calendar. We all love racing. We all train to race sometimes. But maybe give yourself a bit more of a break from pressurized training so that you can build volume and then focus it for the races that you do have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. a lot of people have learned a lot during COVID and the ones that have been maybe, well, I'd say the ones I'm fortunate enough to have more time to train. There's nothing fortunate about if you've lost your job or been put on furlough and worried about your job at all. So let's not say they're fortunate to have more time to train. But but yeah, I think that's I think people a bit more chance to experiment and learn those things. And, 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 you know, we've talked in the past about just getting back to the pure enjoyment of sport. You know, we know that people are very process orientated. People who love running, love swimming, love cycling. 
those are the people that are in it the longest and tend to perform the best. Whereas the ones that are outcome driven, I'm, I'm only only ride a bike because I've got to do an Ironman. They're the ones that tend to not last as long. But my one final thought is how um, the trends in each of the, so I'm going to pick triathlon as an example, the swimming, cycling and running. The trends and the things that are kind of happening in the marketplace, I suppose, as well, across those three sports and how it influences the way people train. Okay, so we've just been talking about for endurance sports um, at professional level. And I think this goes right back to kind of Lidyard's principles, isn't it? You know, we're talking about a lot of the uh, top end. They're still following those Lidyard principles. Lots of low intensity base work. The swimmers, the cyclists, the runners, lots of low intensity base work and then small amounts of very high intensity work to support it. And we know that people who, who aren't professional and are working full time haven't got the time to do that. So they have to adapt. But what I see is a difference across the three sports. OK, so in swimming, for me, what tends to happen is either people are very technically orientated. So we're going to do lots and lots of drills because drills are the key thing and technique is everything. I'm going to do lots and lots of drills. Or in the swim sessions at most tri clubs that I've seen, they do a maximum of two and a half K and they smash it from the warm up. OK, cycling influenced a lot by Zwift and indoor riding. And I'm going to say influenced more by the by the power meters and measurements of output. Lot of high intensity focus, FTP, sweet spot work um, high intensity VO2 max intervals. Everything is High intensity, high intensity, done to measure accurate power. Running, which technically for me hasn't caught up with cycling, different. People tend to go out and do more easy miles, more volume in running, and especially with the trail runners. So I see that the kind of motivations and the patterns different across the sports. So the tr- I think a lot of triathletes would probably spend more time doing easy mileage running and in their cycling, because they're swift fanatics, doing lots of high intensity work, measuring power output all the time, driven by those metrics. So they're they're not looking at, as an endurance athlete, do I need to do low intensity or high intensity? I think the sport and the trends in those sports influences how they're training for them. That's a curveball for the last question, isn't it? So triathletes, what do you think the current trend is in triathletes for, for, for example, cycling? How it's impacted by Zwift and power meters and stuff like that. Do triathletes do lots of easy miles or do they tend to do more high intensity work? I've been jotting notes as you've talked. I've written exactly the same things you mentioned. Yeah. You know, I think um, a bugbear I have in swimmers, triathlete swimmers, is they see drills as volume builders. Mm. I'll stick a couple of hundred meters of drills in to complement the hard sessions because now I've got 3K instead of 2K. Mm. But actually, just swim bloody slow because yeah. most of them aren't doing the drills properly anyway. Yeah. Um, again, yeah, we are limited. People are limited with time and things like that. But again, you can you can manipulate that. Uh, the whole tech and metrics thing <laughs> bothers me immensely. I just it's all about how fast and hard people are going. I would just love one influencer to start sharing things of how long how far and how slow we went Mm. imagine we could switch that around on a bike or a run today i ran or today i cycled 100k and it took me bloody six hours seven hours Mm. and now suddenly go oh well today i did 100k it took me eight hours 
and, and it's relative to the person, obviously. But now, rather than how fast can I get somewhere, it's how long was I out for. That's going to be a really nice switch for people to start learning. Oh, volume's a thing, volume's a thing. Um, but yeah, you know, and again, uh, this isn't us criticizing things like Zwift, Peloton, and all of that stuff. They're fantastically useful things. But once we get competitive heads on or um, comparative heads on, because that's the other thing, it's about keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. And if keeping up with the Joneses is how fast I've done a segment or whatever my fastest known time is, et cetera, then that's where we start to push towards the intensity, not the volume. Yeah. I think the popularity of Swift in particular, with a, with a group of triathletes that, if I, you know, not just people of coach, but the triathletes, triathletes are no. The cycling, a lot of them are Zwift fans. And I use Zwift, Zwift myself. I'm not having a go at Zwift at all. But what I seem to see is this drift towards Zwift races, lots of high-intensity stuff all the time. So all their training in cycling tends to be hard, hard, hard. And it's just very quality over quantity and all, like, you know, got to be going hard all the time. I don't see that in the running club members I don't see people who are runners going out every day and doing 30 minutes of high intensity work. They tend to run steadier. So I think across the sports, if we're saying that as a rule of thumb, in an endurance sport, 80-20 uh, is what we should be aiming for. That means that 80% of your swimming should be long and steady and 20% or less should be short and hard. 80% of your cycling should be long and steady and 20% should be short and hard. And the same should apply for running. And I think runners get closer to it. I think cyclists are nowhere near it. Most of the triathletes I know. And I don't think swimmers are anywhere near it either. So I think it's different across those three sports. And I do think it's influenced by introduction of power meters, swim, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's the, the availability of metrics is certainly uh, an important consideration. But I think another element to it as well is if you actually look at um, the, the breakdown of the amount of time for each element of a triathlon, um, the cycling is actually the one where you're out there the longest. Mm. Most yeah. people, or it should be, unless you're um, getting something wrong on the run. Um, wh whereas in your training, you're actually doing more of the sort of easier, long uh, stuff on your run and, and less of it on the bike. So yeah. and that's another point for people to think about and why that is. But I think the metrics are very important because people can make those direct comparisons much more easily on the bike, I think, uh, in terms of what power them. Uh, they're achieving now than than you can with um, with running and swimming. Well, swimming to some degree, but not power, obviously. But it's a little bit more control. But running is obviously heavily influenced by um, wind direction, whether you're running on the hills, where you're running. Um, you can get obviously there are power meters available for running now, but most people don't have them. And if they do, then different ones give you different values. So mm -hmm. they're common is much more difficult um, in running than it is for cycling. Yeah. Uh, but the indoor, I think the indoor is an element as well. People, do, uh, because people are training indoor, is that it's much more enjoyable to do something that's high intensity, isn't it? Mm. Than uh, uh, than to do something long and easy indoor is, is pretty grueling on a bike. But um, so I think that they're important ones. The other important consideration, I think, you, you can get away with it on a bike. And still go out and ride hard on a bike again the next day. You try doing that when running. Your legs will soon, um, because it's weight bearing, that they'll soon let you know that they don't like you. That they don't like it. But that doesn't mean it's right to do it in cycling just because you can get away with it. It's yeah. sort of makes optimal training. 
I think it seems all the all the stuff on the indoor platforms as well, not whether it's um, you know Trainer Road or Zwift or whatever, it's all FTP builders, FTP builders. It's all focused on one very short thing. You know, that's like going out on a an, on a 5K, uh, going beginning running and just everything is 5K uh, race building, 5K race building. You know, all your sessions are geared around running a fast 5K. Everything's high intensity running. You wouldn't do that, but in cycling, it seems to almost become the norm now. You know, and I know it's that time thing that people want to just finish within an hour and feel like they've done something really hard. But the indoor, the indoor training platforms, I do think, are pushing people away from more aerobic riding, away from the 80-20, and everything is just hard, hard, hard. Well, I think Mike mentioned Peloton. I, I, I've not used it, but I'm aware of what it is. I, I can't imagine an instructor saying, right, we're all going to get on the bike now and then just crawl along in zone one for three hours. <laughs> is it? Whereas you know they're, they're driving, people. it's like a spinning class, isn't it? It's it's geared towards intensity. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, Mike, any final thoughts from you on that? No, I think I think I've enjoyed today. It's been a really nice topic. I think it's a really good, juicy one for people to get get their um, teeth into. I think if you're listening to it and you've got any thoughts to add, then stick it in the Twitter feeds and and we can chat about them again on on the next episodes. Yeah, definitely. Have you got anything you want us to cover in the podcast or anything you want us to talk about or any questions you want us to ask, answering as well? You know, just ask the questions, I'd say, whether it's on the Facebook post or a tweet or whatever, however we've shared the podcast. Just ask the questions and we'll, you know, we can discuss it more in the next podcast. But, um, but yeah, any final thoughts from you, Ian? Yeah, no, it's a really good topic and I think it's one that t- took us in many directions and I, I almost at one point started talking about pacing when we are talking about running a full marathon and uh, what draws people towards different pacing strategies, but I thought that's a whole topic of its own, so probably one for a, uh, a future discussion, that one, but I, I think that does relate to some of the things we've touched on today as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Pace judgment, as that's key, I guess, isn't it? And I would say, in re- uh, um, remember... I've always said this to you, everything comes back to psychology. We always talk about, it's like training is so physiologically focused, isn't it? You know, it's all physiology, heart rate zones, power and, you know, uh, oxygen consumption and stuff. But the reality is, if you can't even get it in your head, what easy is and what hard is and what the right pace is, and you can't get your head around the training correctly, then then it's a non-starter from the beginning, isn't it? So it all starts with your head rather than your body. Yeah. Good, good. I very much enjoyed today's chat then, guys. Thank you very much. And uh, we're on a roll, so we should do this again in two weeks' time. Uh, I look forward to it. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store, at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the endurance coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com, where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon.